This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi everyone, and welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveller. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and with me, as always, is my co-host Meredith Carey. Hello! This week, we're picking back up our slightly neglected How I Became series and introducing you to Christina Mittermeier, whose litany of jobs include marine biologist, conservationist, photographer, and co-founder of Sea Legacy, a non-profit dedicated to protecting the ocean. She's managed to wrap all of those roles up into one magnificent career that we cannot wait to dive into. Thank you so much for joining us, Christina. It is so much fun to be here. Thank you for having me. So you didn't start your career off as a photographer. Can you talk to us about your early career, what you were doing before you picked up the camera full time? Absolutely. So when I was a little girl, I am one of five children in a very Mexican Catholic family. There's four girls and a boy, my older brother. So one day my dad came home and he had this amazing book, Jack Cousteau on the Water Adventure. And the book was a gift for my brother, who was, you know, marginally interested in the ocean. I wish the book had been for me, you know, mostly because it would have validated that my father was paying attention to my passions and my interests, but it wasn't. So I would sneak into my brother's bedroom to look at this book and just imagine one day swimming with dolphins or even seeing a whale, a live whale. Can you imagine? So anyway, I wanted to become a marine biologist out of this romantic idea of swimming with dolphins. And at the time in Mexico, we didn't have that available. We had something called biochemical engineering and marine sciences because as a developing country, Mexico was looking for ways to utilize and exploit our resources uh, for a population. So my career had to do with fisheries and aquaculture. So how do we create more deadly traps for you know marine wildlife at massive scales so needless to say i was not very enamored with my career and by the time i graduated i was actually pretty disenchanted and horrified with the way that we capture food from the ocean in a manner that i think is both wasteful and very destructive so i wanted to do something else and uh, I, i didn't know you know how to how to convey the sense of urgency at the destruction that i had seen I thought science was going to be the way to do it. So I became part of academia, publishing scientific papers. And it didn't take me long to realize that people do not connect emotionally to data and graphics and scientific lingo. As a matter of fact, most of us don't have the background knowledge and context to process that type of information. We tend to feel stupid when we're confronted with something that we don't understand and we reject it. 
But almost by accident, I realized um, by publishing a book with a friend, you know, I was writing all that scientific stuff in his book. He was a photographer. And when we launched the book, I remember seeing people going through the pages of this book and stopping at the photographs and not just reading the caption and looking at it. They were asking questions. And I remember having this aha moment, you know, when we look at a picture, we all feel competent. We all have a machine nowadays in our hand, a device that makes us experts. Therefore, we feel empowered to ask questions. And I thought, ah, photography is the way that we open a bigger door for people to enter into this conversation. So that's how it happened. Photography as a, as a craft or an art form can feel quite an intimidating thing to decide to take on, especially if you didn't study it in school or pick, pick it up when you were you know, growing up. How did you kind of like gear yourself up to pick up a camera and almost like not feel silly starting to take photographs? That's such a great question and a question that nobody's ever asked me. <laughs> I think the short answer to that is I didn't know enough about photography to be intimidated by it. Because in almost every other aspect of my life, being a girl and being a woman meant that somebody had told me at some point in my life that this was not for me, that this was too dangerous, that this is too difficult, that, you know, this is going to make you less palatable to a husband. But nobody had ever told me anything about photography, so I didn't know that I was not good at it. You know, I, I just started taking pictures and I think it was lucky that I, I just didn't have those negative voices in my head, you know, and turned out I was good. So who knew? <laughs> How did the process go of picking up the camera, finding conservation photography work that you were really interested in or finding locations to take those first photos. What was that experience like? It was one of those things, you know, as a good Mexican girl, by that time I was already married and I had married um, a very interesting man, a scientist who is to this day, one of the top conservationists in the world. And my, my first husband, Russ, he's also an anthropologist. So he always has had this interest in indigenous communities. So even as a young bride, I was, tra I was traveling with him. He was the one who had a camera. You know, he had one of those little FM2s, Nikons that are manual old mechanic. And he documents things, right? So he's not a photographer. He just uses the camera to snapshot his life and the things he encounters. But I was carrying the camera for him. So... We were in this village in the middle of the Amazon and I saw a man uh, coming out of a house and he was beautifully framed, you know, the fringe of the detached roof and the background behind him was completely black and I, I snapped a couple of shots because I could see in my head what that was going to look like in a photograph. Anyway, we went back home and it turned out that the Museum of Natural History in Houston was doing a big exhibit on the traditions of this particular tribe and they needed some pictures. So Ross sent a box of slides. This isn't the back in the days of film. And they picked some images and then they invited us to the opening of the exhibit. And I remember stepping out of a taxi and looking up at the museum building. It's, it's beautiful in Houston and seeing my photo printed like almost the size of the facade of the building. They had picked it and they were using it as the banner for the marketing of this exhibit. And it was credited to Ross Miramar. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, wow, you know, of course it was his camera and I was borrowing, but I had a thought in that moment about, okay, I need to take this seriously. And I went back to school. I signed up for night classes at the Corcoran College for the Arts. 
and I was the oldest person there. But again, you know, being surrounded by young people who were fearless in their creativity was really helpful to me. And that's how I started my career as a photographer, you know, just taking pictures. In the beginning, I was not traveling and taking pictures of animals for a living, but I needed to pay for more equipment. So I started a little business in my hometown in Great Falls, Virginia, taking portraits of the people there. So prom, wedding, you know, Christmas card, portraiture, that kind of thing. And it was good training. It, it taught me a lot about how to do the work eventually. How does shooting prom photos uh, help you in photographing sharks underwater? <laughs> Have you ever had a conversation with a 14, 15 year old girl? <laughs> it can same, be exact same. <laughs> <laughs> and no, what it actually taught me is that um, it's in the moments when people are less guarded, same as with animals that the most beautiful emotional connections can be made. And so I learned very quickly that just like teenagers, sharks are like wild horses. If you chase them, they will, you know, show you a side that you don't want to see. But if you just sit there quietly and put your hands out and allow them to come to you, they will open up and show you a very emotional different side of themselves. So I learned that early on and I'm glad I did. It's important to allow people, any subject really, to approach you in their own terms. It sounds like wildlife photography and perhaps prom photography as well um, requires a lot of patience. Talk us through what it takes to get that shot. Of course, every situation is different, but kind of, is it a few hours? Is it a day? Is it days to get that one image of that animal? So the most relevant way of answering that question really is just how long it takes to master the equipment. And the truth of the matter is just, it's just like anything. If you tackle it in small segments, it becomes intuitive one day, but it's not immediately easy to do, right? So learning how to create a, an appropriate exposure and how to create a beautiful composition, it's almost like learning a language learning photography. You know, you learn the ABCs and then you start building little words and then full sentences. And one day when it all comes together, it's almost like writing poetry when you create that beautiful photograph. It takes time. And so that was a f the first thing, you know, building the steps to, to being able to be a photographer. And then gaining access to the wild ecosystems where I wanted to work was the next big hurdle. So at this point, I'm already a mother. I have two children of my own and a stepson, and I'm traveling with this husband of mine who's a conservationist, and we're going to really wild places, but I'm taking care of all these children. I discovered that maybe the place for me to build a photography career was not photographing the animals, but staying behind in the villages and spending time with the people. And I realized that there were not many photographers telling the story of this place where humanity and nature really come together in an intimate way. And for indigenous people, it's that way. But I also discovered that when you arrive in any village with three little kids in tow, there's a sisterhood of women out there that will open the doors and they will offer you shelter and they will give you a hand and they will want to take care of your children with you because that's what women do. <laughs> And so I was gaining access to the intimate places where people live and have their families. And I was part of, you know, scenes that are not open to a lot of people. <laughs> it's amazing. So that's how I started my career. That's how I 
started taking the pictures that I really wanted to take. From there, from there to becoming a shark photographer, you know, it's another <laughs> ten. It's another ten years. <laughs> when you think back on the last ten years, what have been some of your favorite or even the most meaningful shoots that you have had that have created some of your favorite or most meaningful photos? So a couple of things happened. Um, and, and, you know, these are events in your life that can define you in a way that defeats you or that you take advantage of and use them as a next, you know, jumping board. So I got divorced and my kids grew up and left. You know, they, they moved on to university, boarding school, whatever. And all of a sudden I find myself in my early 40s thinking, you know, this this is who I'm going to be. I'm going to be a single mother, a, a lonely woman. You know, who's going to want to be with me? And living in Washington, D.C. and, you know, feeling pretty terrified at what was going to happen to me next. And then I met Paul Nicklin. You know, I we were having breakfast, one of those business meetings in National Geographic. Then he walked in and we made an instant connection. And, you know, he has been the next chapter of my life in such a meaningful way, because not only has he been a great partner to do conservation photography with, he's also been an incredible photography mentor for me. So... I remember going on an assignment because <laughs> this is another big thing, right? Uh, fake it till you make it. Somebody asked me to go and photograph this lobster fishery in Honduras, and I had no idea how to do underwater photography, but I said yes anyway. And I didn't have the equipment, so I asked Paul if I could borrow his camera, and I took it with me. And it was another one of those, wow, revelation moments, you know, to put that camera underwater and then just a little above and to be able to see above and below the water. And for me, that was like, wow, this opens a whole new world of photography where I can satisfy the curiosity I feel for what's beneath the surface and I can share that with the world. So what you're seeing on top is just a small fraction of what's happening below and it's fascinating. And that's how I started my career in underwater photography. And then I wanted to show you, you know, what a shark looks like in that little top segment of the ocean or a whale or a jellyfish or a turtle. <laughs> it just has taken me down this road to where now I really feel like the circle has completely closed because I can point my camera in that way towards the coast and those indigenous communities, coastal people that live on the edge of the ocean. And I can now bring all of those skills full circle to tell the story of those people with my camera. We talked to a Hawaiian spearfisher and freediver a couple weeks ago, and she was talking about how in order to catch the fish that she's catching, she really has to completely relax in the water which is kind of what you're talking about with the sharks coming towards you and just having your hands out. But obviously you're having to think about your diving equipment, your camera, the wildlife around you, the ocean, which is its own beast. How do you do all of that and stay as relaxed as I'm sure you need to be to have the animals come close enough to you to take photos? It's such a great question because it really is the coming together of many, many skills. And being a competent water person is number one, you know, not panicking and being a good diver. And people ask me this all the time, you know, how do I become an underwater photographer? Well, first learn how to dive and then get a hundred dives before you even pick up a camera. But this is something I learned from the free diving community, because in order to free dive, to be able to hold your breath underwater, 
you're trying to, you know, utilize the oxygen in your bloodstream in the most uh, efficient way, but you're also trying to stop the accumulation of CO2 in your body from triggering your mammalian reflex to breathe. And you do that through a meditation, through breathing, you know, so it's the most beautiful feeling when you are in the surface and you're taking these breaths to prepare your body for free diving. You almost fall asleep and you go into this other side of your brain. It really is an amazing feeling that you can practice, you know, sitting in your in your living room, this type of calming breathing. And that's how you do it, really. You calm yourself and animals sense that calmness in you. And then you can allow them to approach you. And at this point, you've had so many dives and so many shoots underwater that the camera part is second nature then? The camera part has to be completely intuitive. And you learn that over a long period of time. And one way to accelerate that learning is if you have a camera, look at all the menus, learn the instruction manual, and uh, lock yourself in a dark room, you know, or close your eyes and try to remember how do you change the ISO? Where is the, you know, exposure compensation button? How do I change the aperture? How do I zoom? All of these things need to be done without thinking. Because when things are happening fast, you know, you cannot be like, oh, my God, where's the pen? <laughs> you can't do that. So, yeah, sure. You, you have to be conscious that there's a big animal in the water, whatever that is. And you have to be thinking about composition, F8. You have to you have these strokes. I mean, there's a lot to think about. Talking about going into that meditative state when you're letting yourself sort of drop into the water in the unknown. Do you think that your relationship with fear has changed. Yes, yes. And this type of breathing, I so highly recommend it for anybody that suffers anxiety in any way, because I, I realized the power of this meditation type breathing as a public speaker. When I started speaking for National Geographic, you know, they train you and first you go into little auditoriums with 40 people and pretty soon you find yourself in the Benaroya Hall. You know, there's 4,000 people in the audience. And you can feel the panic, you know, in your body, you know, use the sweat that it's a real physical thing. But if you start breathing with this type of breathing, it goes away. And it's no different when you see out of the visibility range a shark, like a tiger shark, you know, coming at you and you have the same exact sensation and you have to calm your body and you do it through breathing. So we've been talking a lot about sharks. But I do want to know what your favorite underwater wildlife scene includes, like what animals are there, what fish, what you really love to photograph more than anything. I get a thrill, and, and, and it's almost an indescribable thrill, to see a manta ray or an eagle ray or stingray coming. I mean, I just find it so beautiful, the ballet type motion of the swim is just so poetic and I love photographing stingrays, manta rays and eagle rays. Is there anything that you haven't photographed oh, that so you much. would love to? <laughs> so I know that's much. a hard so, question. Well there's so much right I mean it's 70% of our planet and we've only been photographing it for about 50-60 years it's very very new. And almost every time you get in the water, you see something that you don't understand. Like, I mean, do you know what a salp is or, you know, what a, an echinoderm is? I mean, there's so, so much wildlife in the ocean that looks so different from anything on land. And 
what I want to photograph is the relationship of that wildlife with humanity and with the people on shore. Because I honestly think that we live in an ocean planet. And, and because we're terrestrial creatures and humans are very selfish, we don't recognize ourselves as ocean creatures, but we are. Imagine if a spaceship from another planet landed on Earth today. I mean, that would be the immediate conclusion. You know, this is an ocean planet. And yet we know so very little about this ecosystem that fuels the entire engine of our atmosphere. And, you know, I I find those mysteries so beautiful to even, you know, start unraveling because we don't have the knowledge, the techniques, the technology to really understand it yet. So we're at the beginning of a new era of exploration in the ocean. So while obviously we have so far to go in terms of gaining an understanding of what is in that ocean, one thing that is clear is that it has to be protected. Talk a little bit about how photography became more and more of a tool for conservation and for climate activism. Yes, it's it's precisely that that you just said, that we need to understand something that feels very foreign to most of us. And I love it when people say some stuff like, you know, we don't need to protect Earth because we're going to move to Mars anyway. You know, and I've heard people say that, actually. And it it really makes me think, you know, so you're friends with Elon and he sent you a ticket for his Because <laughs> I don't think I'm in his list. You know? But even if I was, imagine that you're going to get on this Elon Musk ship that's taking us to Mars. The first thing that you would get would be an incredible briefing of how every system on that ship that's carrying us across space works. You would need to know exactly where your water is produced, how your waste is recycled, everything. And here we are, you know, on our little spaceship going across the universe all alone, and we know nothing. (laughs) But not only do we know nothing, we're destroying it, you know, in such a wasteful manner. We've allowed people to determine that entire human communities and entire ecosystems are completely disposable. You know, we we can just write them off. We're going to put a mine here and this entire lake is going to be destroyed. That is so short-sighted, you know, when, when you live in a place that has finite resources. So I feel, to answer your question, that photography is a wonderful way to engage more people in that conversation. Not only do we need to appreciate the ecosystems that keep us alive, We need to understand them and we need to make significant investments in protecting them. Because today we find ourselves at the crossroads of climate change crisis and a biodiversity extinction crisis. And we didn't get here by accident. If you look back at the last 30 years, the majority of financial investments that are made just for charity, think about that. The United States is the most charitable country in the world. As a people, we donate about $480 billion a year to charity. But 30% of that goes to religion and then to education and health and art and the humanities. And only 1.8% goes to the environment. 1.8. So this is a pyramid that's inverted. And unless we're praying our way out of this mess, we need to tip that pyramid over and make the most significant investments into solving these problems. And it starts with understanding and appreciating and feeling like we are part of this ecosystem. And I feel like my photography tries to do that. You know, we talked back in March, I think, um, about what it was like 
for you to be home because so much of your life revolves around being on the road, taking photos, giving talks, seeing the environment change and move and making sure that everyone else sees that as well. How have you navigated, you know, the last six, seven months being grounded during a time when the climate crisis feels especially and kind of endlessly urgent? Mm -hmm. I have used this time in a very reflective way, not only to rethink my personal output as a creative and, you know, as a member of the scientific community, but also how Sea Legacy, my organization, is going to contribute going forward. What I can tell you, Meredith, is that whatever we've been doing as an environmental community until now is not working fast enough. So we have to rethink everything and put it on, you know, fast forward motion. And so that's what we're doing. So two things. I've been spending my time thinking, how do we get many, many more eyeballs into watching the stuff that we're putting out to be part of the conversation about protecting our planet? And number two is how do we make that piece of funding bigger, not just for Sea Legacy, but for every other conservation organization? And so as a communicator and a storyteller, that's what we can contribute. And so we have built this platform, Only One, that launched yesterday. It's pretty exciting to share with people, take, take audiences through journeys uh, that are aimed at achieving these goals of protection. And it's a little nerdy, it's a little brainy, but last year, a scientific paper was published by some of my favorite fellow scientists, and they named the paper um, Rebuilding Marine Life, and they're thinking that we can do it in this generation if we follow this plan. We need to create more marine protection. We need to protect more species. We need to stop the flow of pollution. We need to rethink our fisheries, you know, back to my university days on this wastefulness and thinking about sea life as something that is a commodity to be mined. We need to tackle climate change and recast the ocean as part of the solution, not just as a victim of climate change. And finally, we need to restore the habitats that are being destroyed. That includes coral reefs and mangroves. And we have to do all of these things at the same time. And so I've used this time to figure out our narratives around these six challenges. And then the solutions are the key part, right? So how do we funnel these audiences to take actions in all of these challenges so that together we can create change? So I know it's a very ranty and rambly answer, but that's how I've been using my time. No, I think that's a pretty good use of your time. <laughs> I have nothing to show for this time. Um, speaking of, you know, I think as an individual, you can often feel quite helpless when you see pictures of raging wildfires or, you know, dying wildlife. What would you say to people who are listening and are feeling a certain sense of helplessness and sort of how can they start to feel more active and that they can contribute some way to this fight. Yeah, that horrible feeling you're feeling right now of helplessness and despair comes from a misalignment of our values with our resources. If we really are worried and if we really care, it's only by making investments of our time, our energy, our commitment to learn and understand, and most importantly, our finances into solving the problem. And so this platform that we launched yesterday, only.one, tries to simplify that for people. 
So you watch a piece of content about Antarctica or about a coral reef, and you fall in love with a story because it's beautiful, and then you feel compelled to do something. And if I don't give you an action you can take, you're going to get that horrible feeling. But if I give you an opportunity to become an, an, a small investor in the, re, the regeneration of a mangrove or a, you know, a, a co-op of women fishermen, or if I ask you to sign a petition and then I show you how our voices together have created change, you're going to be so excited and that feeling is going to go away and you're going to want to do more. And so that's the kind of feeling we're trying to create in people. We can do this. And the only way we can do it is together. And it's going to feel really good. When you look at what you guys have done in the last, you know, six months, and then you look towards the future when we have a vaccine, when travel is a much more viable international travel, the travel that you guys are doing is a much easier thing to do. What are your first stops? What are the things, places, people that you want to see, photograph, etc.? So even even before the pandemic, uh, Paul and I were already thinking about how to lessen our footprint on our travel while continuing to tell the stories that are important. So a year ago, Paul and I invested all of our money, all of our savings, and we bought a 62-foot catamaran. It's an aluminum beast. Um, it's called the Sea Legacy One, and we have spent the last few months working with sponsors who have given us new sails, new engine, new, you know, all of it is being retrofitted. It's in Annapolis in Maryland. And next Friday, exactly a week from now, Paul and I are going to drive across Canada. We're going to be pulling our camper because we don't want to stay in hotels or, you know, risk getting sick or getting anybody else sick. And we're going to go, you know, do a road trip across Canada. And then we're going to drop down, go to Annapolis, Maryland. We're going to get on our boat and we're going to start the biggest adventure of our life. We're taking the Sea Legacy One around the world, telling stories, visiting communities, spending time with scientists and streaming all of this live and giving everybody an opportunity to be part of the story, to take actions that help and to basically let the world know it is still beautiful out there. There is still hope. It's not all lost and we can still do something. So let's do it. How are you even preparing for this? I haven't. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm in a panic. You know, I, um, I haven't, Meredith. It's terrible. I was going to say, what do you pack? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think you pack smart, right? Because when you live in a boat, it's very similar to living in, in COVID quarantine. You learn to live with so much less. And you learn to be happy without, you know, the excess of experiences and stuff that we are used to having. And I think going forward, if we all commit to doing a little bit of that every day, our plan is going to be better off for it. Let's just consume less. I can't even imagine how you would choose to plot the places on this route. But what are some of the places that you're really excited to either return to or to step off the boat into for the first time? So our first stop in the journey is the Bahamas because we were there a year and a half ago and we fell in love with what the Bahamians have done to protect their coastline. They protected 30%. It's, you cannot kill sharks in the Bahamas. They're all protected. There's beautiful you know, shark diving industry around it. I mean, all of that is worth celebrating. And then six months after we first were there, Dorian hit. And the devastation of Dorian was so brutal, you know. So we went back with a team and we filmed the communities, the 
people that had lost everything. We went diving in the reef, you know, it felt like a giant had come in and turned everything upside down. So then we sent a team to film and to help with the cleanup of some of these reefs. Now we want to go back, you know, and I, I feel like the story of the Bahamas is such a powerful story of resilience, of um, determination, but it's not free of threats. It's hard for me to understand why Bahamas is thinking about oil drilling in their beautiful coastal waters. So we want to tell that story. But from there, it's an open book. You know, we don't know where we're going. Part of it is dictated by nature itself. You know, hurricane season is not over until December. And, you know, the worst thing that can happen to you if you're a small boat is to have to run from a hurricane. So we have to plan our route thinking about where the stories are, where the tipping points are, where Mother Nature allows us to go and where people need us, really. That feels like a perfect place to wrap up because I feel like people have to know where they can follow this journey. So where can our listeners find you on social media? So I hope that they'll follow us on Instagram. And of course, we have the Sea Legacy account, my account, which is at Mitty, M-I-T-T-Y, and then Paul Nicklin. We have only one, this new beautiful storytelling platform we launched and uh, SeaLegacy.org. You know, that's where we're going to be posting all these stories. Amazing. You can find me at Oh Hey There Mayor. And me at Lale Hannah. Be sure to follow Women Who Travel at Women Who Travel on Instagram and sign up for our newsletter. And I cannot wait to see what you guys get up to, Christina. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll talk to everybody next week. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency, we're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.